This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Today we're speaking with the authors of a just-released book, Marketing for Financial Advisors. The authors are Wharton marketing professors Eric Bradlow and Patty Williams, and also Keith Niedermeyer, who's the director of undergraduate marketing programs at Wharton. Welcome all. This must be a tough time for financial advisors. There's been a real carnage in the stock market, and it can't be a good thing uh, when it comes to confidence in your financial advisors. No doubt many would argue that in tough times you need a financial advisor more than ever, and that adversity creates opportunity. But hasn't credibility taken a blow? Um, And what can financial advisors say? My customers lost less money than the others. Keith, would you like to start out with that one? Uh, sure. We we see the difficult economic times certainly as as problematic for advisors, but uh, more as an opportunity that uh, while advisors may be having those problems with their clients, certainly the competition is also, which suggests this is the time to understand your customers and your clients better than better than any other time. Um, it's an opportunity to um, to lock down the clients you have and to create opportunities to get more clients from other dissatisfied clients from other advisors. So, Eric, would you like to add? All right. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that is uh, one of the things we stress in the forward of the book, which has gotten a lot of kind of popularity and buzz, is is this the time to attack or retreat? And one of the things we stress in the book is, as you pointed out, is that this is an opportunity to gain ground against other financial advisors. And so we see this as an opportunity to attack, and it's what we talk about in the first 10 pages in the forward of the book. You mentioned in the book how important it is for financial advisors to develop three words to describe their business, the three messages that most potential customers will take away from an introductory conversation. So let's turn the tables here on you folks. What are the top three takeaways from your book, and why don't each of you choose one? Patty, why don't you go first? Sure. And actually, maybe I'll pick up on the the notion that you just mentioned of choosing those three words. One of the um, most important things that we emphasize in the book is thinking about Um, your business if you're a financial advisor as a brand. A lot of financial advisors are um, uh, a little bit afraid of marketing. They didn't get into the business to be marketers. They don't want to be perceived as um, taking advantage of their customers through marketing. Um, But a lot of what they're doing is actually marketing. And we tell them they should think about those three words and, and really think about the nature of the brand they want to deliver to their customers. What do they want to be? Who do they want to be to their clients? And how can they set up their entire practice around building that, that image and that capability so that they can truly be what they want to be to their clients? I think one of the big takeaways that um, I've seen in the classes is uh, the concept of developing a board of advisors. I think one of the things that we talk about a lot in the book is getting feedback not only from your clients, but also from a set of potential peers. So maybe these are accountants, lawyers, doctors, maybe these are trusted servants. One of the tactics that we talk about at the end of the book is developing your kind of word of mouth army. Who are the people you would like to speak about you? And we'll talk about later the three words we'd like them to speak about you. So having a board of advisors, just like any company would do, is a good strategy for a financial services practice. Okay, I think, I think one of the main third takeaways that, that we'll talk about is the importance of finding your niche, matching up your strengths as an advisor to a, a group of clients 
um, that are looking for that strength. And what that means is, is really narrowing the field, going beyond just high net worth clients or people who are at retirement to a narrow focus, both demographically, um, how much uh, they have to invest, um, what they're looking for in an advisor, et cetera. Okay. And now, uh, can you tell me what it is that makes your book different from others on this same topic? Sure, maybe I'll start and you guys can jump in. Um, One of the things that I think differentiates our book is um, uh, several chapters devoted to investor decision-making and a a deeper understanding of um, uh, investor psychology. Um, uh, Keith and I are psychologists. We come at this from um, that perspective, um, and we've really worked quite hard to sort of aggregate the literature, distill the literature on all of this topic, and then frame it within the context of this broader sort of marketing strategy um, and this um, this effort to, to really understand your customers and understand your niche. And there are relatively few books out there that offer this as part of a bigger um, sort of marketing perspective in particular. I think the, and, and, and not being the consumer psychologist amongst us, I think the, uh, the value that I've kind of tried to espouse and bring through the book is, again, the value of data, which is why I think when, you know, Patty and I started teaching this and we designed a survey specifically to get the voice of clients into the book, is that we're the only book that I know of that has actually done a survey of financial advisors. And so it's not yeah, investor psychology is crucially important, segmentation's important, et cetera, but how about using the voice of actual financial advisors? And I think that's a huge differentiator for this book, and also the stuff that we do in the book that's more quantitative in nature that talks about putting a value on clients and trying to understand which ones are the best to go after. In some sense, if you'd like, it's marketing the Wharton way, and marketing the Wharton way is a data-based quantitative way. Absolutely. That's really the way I see the book. I feel as if um, we've been working with financial advisors for so long, but we've really taken um, almost the curriculum of of the introductory marketing course as we would teach it to MBAs here at, at Wharton and really put it in a context that, that is usable for financial advisors. And actually beyond that, um, I, I think it, it goes well beyond just kind of anecdotes or stories um, f- from successful advisors to really this data-driven approach that really could be taken to, to mortgage brokers, to uh, the insurance industry, to a lot of other related industries. Uh, but we've chosen to focus on financial advisors because we have so much firsthand experience with them, and we felt that there was a real need in the market for a book like this. Patty, are there other industries besides those mentioned that would benefit from the book? Well, I mean, I think that the book um, is it, it, it offers a real fundamental um, set of principles about how to think about marketing. And from that perspective, it's useful to anyone who thinks that an investment in marketing could improve their business. Um, uh, we've used some of the you know same concepts when we've been talking with optometrists, talking about how they can do a better job of marketing their practices. And it's really about understanding clients, understanding customers, understanding their fears, their concerns, thinking about it from a strategic point of view as opposed to a purely tactical point of view. Lots of opportunities. Thank you. Uh, From surveying some 800 financial advisors, you find that customer service or understanding client needs is the number one driver of success, not delivering high or above average financial returns. That may surprise some people. Um, That's actually listed as fourth. Uh, So so much for the bottom line being everything. But based on that, can you tell us two things? Uh, In today's market, is building customer relationships the same as building trust? And what else uh, does building customer relationships include? What does it look like? So, 
I maybe thought. I'll uh, I'll take the first half of that and then pass over to Keith kind of for the second half. Actually, one I was going to say more philosophically, one of the best things when Patty and I started teaching in this program maybe five or six years ago, and then when Keith joined us maybe three years ago now, the smartest thing we ever did was developing the survey. Because that's what really separates this book from other things that have been written, is that we actually use the word of the financial advisor to help, if you'd like, you know, append what it is we know as marketing professors. So it's not just three marketing professors sitting there thinking about what are the best practices. We actually use the voice of the customer. And just also uh, adding to what Patty said earlier, the nice thing about it is notice the name of the industry. It's not the financial industry. It's the financial services industry. And so that's another thing to emphasize to people is that being a service industry, just as Patty said, you have to bring in the concept of marketing. If you told someone they were in customer service, they would understand the importance of marketing. And so it's a services industry. We've surveyed people. And I think Keith also had done a lot of background research. We're not the only ones that have found that uh, service is the most important thing and that if you'd like delivering super normal returns is the fourth most important. Uh, absolutely. We, we found um, in a lot of other surveys, in addition to the, the work that we've done, is that relationship building um, is really the key to, to creating satisfaction and creating loyalty. And as you point out, it consistently comes in above financial returns. And one of the things which goes hand in hand with what Patty was saying about branding is that good financial returns are expected and, and a financial advisor would not be in the consideration set or, or really be hired in the first place by a client without the expectation of that. So it's almost as if that's that's assumed and that's required for admission. And, and at that point, you're talking about proactive communication, clear articulation of fees, um, problem resolution, the things that build trust and build relationships hand in hand. Well, what does this customer relationship building look like, Patty? Would you explain sure. a good way to think about this? Sure. Um, well, I think that, um, I mean, throughout the book, we talk about the value of um, really beginning at the beginning with a, you know, a sound set of marketing practices, really starting with the notion of segmentation. Who are your customers? What do they want from you? Customer relationship building really begins with an understanding of what they want and then an understanding of what you can bring so that you're actually promising something you can truly deliver and you really are delivering something that the customers are actually going to value. Customer relationship building isn't just about acquiring clients and keeping them for a long period of time um, and imagining you know, what the, the, the net present value of those returns might be over some time, but really thinking about how you can cultivate those returns by building a bigger relationship that deepens, um, that starts off as a, you know, a simple conversation and then builds to some sense of loyalty and trust that emerges um, over a time horizon. The only thing I would add to what Patty said, and I talk about this a lot when I teach this, is let's suppose someone, as Patty was saying, and Keith was saying, chooses as a niche market, physicians. Pretty reasonable market to target. You better like hanging out with these people. You know, a lot of times, you know, it's easy to feign sincerity, like, you know, that's where the money is, I'll chase the money. But when you're actually trying to build a relationship, people can see through that immediately. So one of the things we also talk about in the book is when you choose a target market, don't just think about where's the money, what's the opportunity. Think about your personal characteristics, the type of people you tend to connect with more, and maybe even collect some data on which type of people you tend to do better at. And so one of the things it's very important is you want to actually want to be around this niche market that you're selecting. So, so that's interesting when you talk about niche markets that you want to uh, look at a narrow slice rather than a broad slice. Is that right? Where I think some financial uh, advisors think you should go after 
rich people, for example. Oh, we, we think uh, that that the narrower the niche, the deeper out the opportunity. And and when we've when we've surveyed the the financial advisors, high net worth clients is the number one niche that that comes out. But we don't feel that that's a niche. We feel that's a very wide sector, and that in order to really build deep relationships and have. Uh, a deep needs-based understanding of your clients, you have to go after a, a more narrow niche. So things like uh, professionals within a certain within a certain profession. Even we've talked about some of some of the most successful advisors we have have the narrowest niches. For instance, um, lawyers in a certain income bracket within a certain geography, or or people working for a certain school district, or things like that. Because these people have unparalleled understanding of the needs, the benefits, the income patterns of, of these types of clients, which somebody who's a generalist can't ever have, and thus can never have the deep understanding and responsiveness that's required to get to that highest level of satisfaction and loyalty that ultimately brings the best returns. So you also note that neither trust nor performance are differentiating factors, uh, but more like the price of entry. You were talking about the price of entry earlier. Um, so every financial advisor has to offer this, but can you discuss some key differentiators that do help financial advisors separate themselves from the pack? Well, let me, let me just step back and talk about the survey results, as you mentioned. One of the things we ask in the survey is, um, you know, what are, what are the uh, arguments you would make to acquire a new client or to, to keep an existing client? And what we find when we ask financial advisors about this is that they almost all mention one of four or five characteristics or capabilities. And as a result, there's virtually no differentiation among them in the market. They're all saying they have exactly the same capabilities. They are trustworthy, they're customer-oriented, they offer good performance, whatever it might be that's in that set of five um, uh, characteristics. They, they all have the same elevator speech? They Is all have the same elevator it? speech. They're uh-huh. not differentiating themselves from one another. And as a result, how could a client figure out who to choose? If all four of us around the table were saying we were exactly the same, how could someone else come in and say, well, I'm going to pick that person or that person? There's no you know, objective... Um, criterion on which to choose. And so what we encourage financial advisors to do is to to say, you have to have those five. Those are table stakes. You need those to get yourself to the table, but they're not going to separate you from someone else. So can you go beyond that? And one way you could go beyond that is by really understanding your segment, um, that niche that you're pursuing. What is it you offer them uniquely that nobody else sitting at the table offers? And maybe it's expertise in a particular um, you know, uh, compensation structure, and you really understand how to deal with that compensation structure in a, in a better way. Um, maybe it's because you have knowledge about particular products. Maybe it's because you have knowledge um, uh, and access to you know, a, a broad set of uh, collaborators who can offer unique services, whatever it might be. But go beyond that level to that five, um, of that top five that you might come up with. Um, that's a hard thing for financial advisors to do. They all want to have that top five. And it, there's no clear advice to what that next set ought to be, except that you should think hard about what your, what your customers really want that next set to be. The one thing I might add to what Patty said is one of the things I have found over the time uh, to be a good way to kind of collect that information is how did people acquire their wealth? It tends to be a very strong predictor of the type of individual you're dealing with. Because one of the things, it's not my area of expertise, but it is Patty and Keith, more has to do with consumer psychology. So think about the person or the potential client that has just inherited a lot of wealth versus someone that's earned that wealth through a family-owned business. Or think about someone that has just, you know, maybe someone that's become an internet, you know, multimillionaire versus some other way of acquiring wealth. 
health. I'm not saying that's the end-all be-all, but it's not a bad way to start thinking about what's the mindset of this individual and kind of what are the types of words and things that will actually be effective towards reaching them. I, th- I think ultimately, to add on to what Eric was saying, going back to uh, this idea of niching, one of the huge themes that comes out of the book, chapter after chapter, is specialization, matching up your strengths as an advisor to a particular niche of clients. And the ability to, to have that matchup creates differentiation also. So, for instance, where you acquire wealth, we've, dealt, we've worked with some, uh, some advisors who specialize in family endowments. Uh, which is a growing, growing business. Um, But you have to have some real specialized knowledge. And for instance, um, one of the overriding concerns with family endowments is is risk aversion and preservation of wealth and carrying that wealth through future generations, not necessarily growth, which can be a very uh, important goal for a lot of other advisors or a lot of other client bases, I should say. So an advisor who really understands that can deal with family endowments, knows the specialized types of products that are best fit for that, and also knows the risk profiling of that is going to create differentiation as opposed to just somebody who's taking, again, any and all clients. Just also to build on that point, notice what Keith's describing, though, could mean sacrifice. So, for example, you all, and that's what we talk about in the book, is that niche marketing and segmentation implies sacrifice. So by not focusing on the aspects of exciting and high growth, which could also tend to lead to risk, you're maybe differentiating yourself away from one set of clients and differentiating yourself towards another set of clients. And as Patty mentioned earlier, a lot of financial advisors are afraid to do that, but that's what the concept of niche marketing is about. So you have to, you have to create something and, and, and also destroy the possibility of going into another area. I, I wouldn't say destroy the possibility. What I would say is most successful brands build themselves one niche market at a time. And that, as Keith mentioned earlier, if you try to spread yourself thin across multiple niche markets, there will always be somebody who's got a greater differentiated product towards that segment than you. I just add one more thing. I mean, the part of the process of defining who you are as a brand is also defining what you aren't or who you aren't. And that means, you know, choosing particular segments that you're not going to focus on or particular capabilities that you don't want to have. So it's as much about saying who you are and who you want to be as, as saying who you aren't and who you don't want to be. Well, that's interesting because you also say in the book that um, maybe you can explain this for our listeners, what you mean by know your brand and know that you are the brand. The best example I can always give, which wasn't actually from teaching financial advisors, I've taught people in the venture capital community before, and they always say that the minute you walk out of your door, you're your brand, which means every aspect of the way, kind of, let's say, you behave, you treat clients, you treat coworkers, et cetera, that's all part of your brand. And so one of the things we do talk a lot about in the book, which more generally marketing people call integrated marketing communications, is every aspect of your business, the people that work with you, your communications messages, et cetera, must be around your brand. But at the end of the day, you know, we always ask this question when we teach this, if you were to leave your particular firm how many, what percentage of your clients would go with you? And in some sense, your firm would like that answer to be low and high simultaneously. But most likely, you would like that number to be high. And I think at the end of the day, your firm would probably want it to be high as well. That shows a true brand. Exactly. The term brand, brand when we uh, 
we've taught, I don't know how many sessions, thousands and thousands of, of financial advisors. And one of the things that, that we found is that a lot of times people don't like the word brand, that you, like you're talking about a can of soup or toothpaste or something like that. So a lot of times we like to talk about it in terms of reputation and, and, and really you're managing your brand is managing your reputation. I think a lot of times that's easier to kind of get your head around in, 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 in terms of how that's going to affect your interaction with your clients and and as Eric was saying, your, your brand and your reputation is, is everything you do. And one of the things that we point out in the book, which a lot of advisors have liked discussing in our sessions, is uh, inventorying your touch points. What is every single touch point um, that a client has with your brand or that would impact your reputation, like your written communications, your collateral materials, including if you work for a bigger firm, what are the what are the things that the fir- what are the messages that the bigger firm is sending to your clients, and how are you either consistent or inconsistent with those messages? So really understanding, inventorying, and integrating all the touch points, all the things that could possibly influence your reputation or your brand with those clients. It's important to have a have a grip on all those and to manage them consistently. Uh, let me just drop down to something a little more tactical. And that is, you mentioned something I thought was very interesting, was, was the classic attack. In, in, in a down market, in a recessionary market, you, you think about advertising a little bit differently, perhaps a lot differently. Can someone explain that, that example that in the book about the, the classic attack during a, a down market by, I think it was a, a market-dominant advisor? I'm happy to, sure, I'm happy to say a few words about that. I mean, the classic model of the way advertising effectiveness works has to do more with the concept of share of advertising. An example would be, let's say you're a firm, I'm a firm. Let's say you spend $100,000 a year on advertising, I spend $100,000 a year on advertising. All else equal, we'll split the market. Now, when I mean all else equal, I mean our products preferred the same way, we're known by the same number of people, etc. But let's imagine that you cut your advertising spend to 50000 and now I spend 100000 on advertising, or the same amount. But you can't potentially increase your advertising because you're having financial issues or troubles, etc. Well, now I'm gonna, I have a two-to-one ratio. So even though my advertising spend has not increased my share of advertising has increased. And that will tend to lead to better awareness of my brand, uh, possibly better preference for my brand, etc. So the reason we talk about this attack strategy is down, just like you mentioned in the beginning, down economic times present opportunities. It gives you a better opportunity to get a larger share of, you, of the mind share and the advertising pie. But again, it's not just who speaks the loudest. As Patty mentioned earlier, it's who speaks with the right brand and the one that's consistent with the message you want to portray. So it's not just shout the loudest, it's shout the loudest with the right message. Uh, regarding recommendations on segmenting the audience, uh, one typical argument against this is that it restricts advisor to a small fraction of potential clients. We talked about this a little bit, but you argue against this idea. Can you elaborate it on on that a little bit more? Sure. I mean, I think that, um, as you said before, many financial advisors are reluctant to do this. Um, what we found, and we we ask our the advisors we've taught, you know, how many people can you really serve? How many clients can you really have in your in your book of business? And um, maybe it's two hundred, maybe it's three hundred. Well, how how big does your segment need to be in order to uh, to achieve that that number? And I think that's the 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 sort of biggest number that we typically see. You know, a much more common strategy is maybe around one hundred and fifty. Um, how big a segment do you need in order to get to that number of clients? And how many people can you really serve? Um, at a level um, that builds that trust, that builds that you know intimacy, that level of uh, a relationship where you're really t- understanding them and their needs, 
um, and and be able to do that? And I think the answer is really not that many. So it really does require sacrifice. It really does require focus. And what we find over and over again is that the advisors who have focused and who have this narrow niche, um, they tend to be better off. They tend to be happier as well. I would just say they find their businesses easier to run than the people who are trying to be everything to everyone. So one last question. What what did you find in your survey of 800 financial advisors that surprised you or that you think would most surprise financial advisors? Maybe you could each pick one thing. The one, the one thing that surprised me was the, the more successful the advisors, um, the fewer clients they had. The, as Patty was saying, the, the ones who seemed to have um, the biggest share of assets under management, the largest assets under management, per client seem to be the one with the narrowest niches and the fewest the fewest clients and uh, kind of to, to follow up on that with Patty is, is uh, advisors who are afraid of doing that one of the things that they need to recognize also is that if you if you were to drill down and just dominate a niche you can move on to the next one at that point the one the next most similar one but to go the opposite to be everything to everybody and try to drill down into those deep deep wallet shares and large amounts of assets under management it's very very difficult we've just seen little to no examples of of that type of so outcome. choosing a narrow niche is really you can just look at it as a place to start you don't have to look at it as a limit I think the one I would add is that um, for businesses that, I mean, if you think about the amount of wealth being managed by a financial services practice, it's not that small. You would think that many of the concept of data-based marketing, meaning using data to actually make decisions, would be used more by financial advisors than it is, like the concept of customer lifetime value. How much is a particular client potentially worth to you, and how much time should you spend on acquiring the customer? The concept of firing customers, which every service or service organization knows. So I think my greatest surprise was the lack of kind of, I'll call it a data-based approach, just collecting how many contacts did you have, how many turned into second conversations, how many led to eventual clients. So I think one of the things we espouse in the book is taking a more data-based approach to actually managing your practice. I would say just in general, um, uh, a lack of um, investment and some fear of being a marketer. Um, the, the truth is, I mean, we work in ExecEd here, we work with many of the very best financial advisors from many of the very best companies. The, the folks who get to these programs are the, you know, the, the top of, of, of any um, firm's um, uh, financial advisors. And what we find is that they're often good natural marketers. They have good tactical instincts, but they've underinvested under in strategy. Um, so they've not thought a lot about what they want their brand to be and how they can integrate it across those touch points. They sort of implement those touch points in a much more tactical kind kind of a low-key way. And sometimes they're doing pretty well, um, but they haven't thought about it at a real high strategic level. And I think this is an industry that has underinvested in marketing in general. And in some ways, I think it's low-hanging fruit for them. Um, this is a place that deserves their investment, and I think it will yield um, returns for them, maybe beyond what they think it will yield. And maybe the market's listening more now than before or not. What would you say? I would say that um, I don't think we wrote this book thinking that the market was listening more, but I must admit it's an opportune time. Um, well, I think many industries um, in downtimes, they, 
they pull in rather than attacking. I think given the nature of the crisis we're facing now and its relationship to the financial industry, I think that has made financial advisors more likely to pull in. They feel more at risk even than they might have in another in another downturn. Um, I, I think smart companies and smart advisors realize the opportunity that this presents and the um, opportunity for them to truly differentiate themselves, especially in this market, um, but many aren't. Keith, any last words of wisdom? Clients out there are, um, they're scared, they're confused, they're, they're looking for good advice. There are a lot of competent advisors out there um, with good advice to give, but it has to be put in a context that, that clients feel comfortable with, um, where they feel comfortable with you, and it needs to be communicated to them. And that's, that's the type of strategy and tactics we tried to put together here to help, to help financial advisors do that, to help them focus on the clients that, that need the help and, and put these two together so there's, there's success all around. And that's really what we're hoping for. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.